got down my knees and I prayed, God, I really need direction in life. And then out of the blue, these words, just be present, Sheridan. And I had been badgering him about purpose and dreams and starting something new. And he was saying, just be present. Life. Faith. Spirituality. More Than This with Sheridan Boise. Hello and welcome to More Than This. I am Sheridan Boise, author of Unseen Footprints, Resilient Resurrection Year, and the brand new book, The Making of Us, Who We Can Become When Life Doesn't Go As Planned. Today's episode is kind of dedicated to that, actually. You're going to hear uh, from a very good friend of uh, mine. Now, she really has become, we've never actually met in person, but I tell you, if you haven't heard Susie Larson's radio show, Middays with Susie Larson, uh, then you need to. And if you haven't connected with her, then you need to. If you haven't read her books, then you need to. Uh, because this is a conversation between Susie and myself on The Making of Us that was just such a delight to do, and she's given me permission to rebroadcast it in this podcast. Well, I hope you're doing very well. You know, as I speak to you now, uh, The Making of Us has been out eight weeks and it's been an exciting eight weeks. In fact, uh, the book has been re- reviewed in dozens of uh, various locations online and in magazines and things. You'll find some of those uh, reviews listed in today's show notes. Uh, been doing dozens and dozens of radio interviews. And I've been hearing some just wonderful things about what the book has actually been uh, doing for people. So, I mean, ultimately, the book, if you haven't heard about it already, is for those people, maybe you, if life just hasn't gone to plan. If maybe you've gone through some sort of life-defining event and you no longer know who you are or what you're doing here anymore, or if you just need a refresher on your identity and purpose, this book is written for you and it's to suggest that that very moment could be when you discover who you most deeply are and actually are positioned to be the most fruitful and the most influential in this world than you've ever been before. That's been kind of my story, and in this memoir, I kind of explore that, and then in the back of the book are some discussion questions for you to just see how these principles work for your own life. Now, it's wonderful to hear about people using it in small groups. Uh, I've heard about the creed, which is kind of a poetic ending to the book, uh, being used in teachers' conferences. Heard about 150 teachers being given a copy of the Creed to kind of inspire them to uh, do their job and do their work. Heard about the Creed being used in uh, work with missionaries returning back from the field, trying to kind of recalibrate their lives, coming back into their original culture, even though uh, they've changed since they've been overseas. And I've heard about the book being given to people who have just gone through drug addictions and overdoses and all sorts of things. And just everyday folks like you and me reading it and getting something out of it. So if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, I do hope you'll get yourself a copy. TheMakingOfUs.com Okay, well, Susie Larson hosts Middays with Susie Larson. And uh, I've been on her show a number of times before. Each time I've always come away thinking, you know what? I need to go and journal some of the things that we discussed because she brings as much to the conversation as she draws out from her guests. She's a great broadcaster, wonderful woman of faith, very generous in spirit. It's all contagious, and I think that you're going to love her show. We're going to explore a whole bunch of things in the next 40 minutes or so. We're going to talk about the difference between primary and secondary callings. 
about how if we fixate on our past achievements, they can blind us to what God is doing in and through us now, how to leave a legacy, and a whole bunch more. Take a listen. I hope you'll enjoy it. And do check out Susie's radio show too. Well, here's a question for you to get this conversation started, and it's, it's a tough one. So far, has life turned out the way that you hoped it would? You know, when life takes one too many unexpected turns, do you find yourself saying, I don't even know who I am anymore? Oftentimes in the wake of those shattered dreams, you wonder how you'll keep going if you ever find purpose and joy again. If you're a have-not, everybody else is a have. Sometimes when you're in those places, people seem to skate through. All their dreams are coming true. All the doors are opening. They have a spring in their step, and you wonder, why not me? Well, my guest today knows that place of uncertainty, and he's written a beautiful book. I mean, I told him before the show that sometimes um, we're seeing books pumped out so fast, like Pez dispensers, you know, that you can almost tell people wrote them fast. This one is a work of art. His writing is lyrical, and it's beautiful. And if you're in one of those uh, in-between places, I'm telling you, you will go on a journey with Sheridan. you got to get this book. We've got a few copies to get into your hands. Title of the book is The Making of Us, Who We Can Become When Life Doesn't Go As Planned. The author is Sheridan Voisey. Sheridan Voisey is a writer, speaker, broadcaster on faith and spirituality. He's married to Marin, and he lives and travels from Oxford, United Kingdom, and he's my friend, and I appreciate him so much. Sheridan, welcome. So good to talk with you again. Oh, Susie, you are just way too kind to me. Thank you so much for that <laughs> delightful introduction. Um, you know, I've said it before, you're one of my favorite hosts, uh, and uh, I just, it's an absolute joy to spend this time with you because we always, I, I find myself taking notes when we have these conversations and I'm kind of learning something. Mm. So my wow. pen is poised. Let's go. Oh, my goodness. Well, that again, that, that means so much because you are uh, a, a veteran broadcaster, and that means the world to me, Sheridan. And I feel the same about you so much. Well, you know this because I've interviewed you so many times. We love to start by talking scripture, and I know you love God's words. Is there either a life verse or just one you've been pondering these days that you can share with us? Well, I think last time we chatted, um, I talked about Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. That's, that's become a real life verse for me. So I'm not going to mention that one in detail now. I'm going to mention one that you're going to kind of go, what? <laughs> really, <laughs> Sheridan? <laughs> this is one of uh, a verse from Paul that I think probably very few people have actually memorized, but I think in I think you're going to find it's going to work its way into our conversation as we continue on. 2 Corinthians 4.12, Paul says, after he's been talking about the difficulties that he as an apostle and the other apostles have, have faced in bringing the gospel to the Corinthians, he says, So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. He discovered... That as the difficult times come, and in his case it was horrendous trials and persecutions, there was a spiritual dynamic at play that as the death was at work in him and trying to attack him and trying to get him, that life was flowing to the people he was serving. That is the little verse that I've discovered to be true. I just think it's amazing. I was pondering that verse a couple of weeks ago, and I was thinking of death on, on multiple oh, yeah. levels, Shared, and thinking, too, at times when you feel slighted, left out, when you don't get your way, when your self-life shows, every death that I die is resurrection power for the kingdom story. You know, we hate those moments, but they're so critical to the greater kingdom story God is writing in our lives, aren't they? 
Yeah, I would even, I would kind of put it this way, because I love the way that you put it there. You know, what did you say? That the, the deaths that we have are, are opportunities for resurrection power. That's so true. And I would say that the empty spaces, the places that have been kind of killed or, you know, died or had to be let go of, the, the places of loss, the empty spaces can actually become channels for God's power. Mm. Uh, where there is the emptiness, the, the, the missing thing, um, that become a, a very channel of God's power to touch and bless other people. Wow, so good. This book, The Making of Us, Who We Can Become When Life Doesn't Go As Planned. Can't wait to dig into the content. But if you would, give us a little backstory on your journey that led to the content of this book. I mean, what really preceded this message and this journey that you took of healing? Yeah. So um, one of our previous conversations, we talked about a, a previous memoir that I'd written called Resurrection Year, and that was all about my wife and I starting again after 10 years of trying to start a family and ultimately being unsuccessful in doing that. And Resurrection Year is all about us coming to the UK. My wife gets a job at Oxford University and it's a great new beginning for her. But it's a difficult beginning for me because um, lots of good things were happening for me in Australia where we had been before. Um, And I was hosting a, a national show that had been a real dream come true and had good opportunities to write and speak and things. And then when I came to the UK, I really had to start again because nobody knew who I was and uh, publishers were telling me to come back when I was famous uh, and things mm-hmm. like that. And it was, a, it was a difficult time. Resurrection Year kind of takes us to the end of our first 12 months in the United Kingdom. The Making of Us then picks up on a little experience that a friend and I had in 2013. We went on a pilgrimage. Now imagine that you get maybe eight or nine days to walk the Appalachian Trail, for instance, and you're able to have some time with a very close friend, and you, as you're walking, you can have this time of asking each other some questions about your childhoods, about your future hopes and your dreams, about your disappointments, and about your future regrets, all sorts of things like that. That's what The Making of Us is based around, and it was really, uh, I guess, me trying to answer the two great human questions of life again. Who am I and what is my purpose for living? Now, I had thought that I had answered those questions. I had thought that pretty much you could find the answers to those questions and and live for the rest of your life doing the answers to those questions. I knew who I was and I knew what I was called to do. When I came to the United Kingdom, I found, actually, I have to ask those questions all over again. And the making of us is really my search for answers personally, but also for the hundreds of people that had read Resurrection Year, got in touch with me, and I noticed in their emails as they told me their stories, they were asking the same thing again. Now that I can't become the mother I wanted to be, who am I? What am I doing here? Now that I've lost the career or, you know, my art hasn't, you know, succeeded or, you know, my CD sales are no good and, you know, whatever it might be, now that the, the dream is broken, who am I and what am I supposed to be doing with my life? So that's really the background to the making of us. And those are such rich and deep questions, Sheridan. You know, I mean, a person who seems to skate, nobody totally skates, nobody gets a free pass, everybody walks through hard stuff. But there seems that there are those who have an abrupt, severe pruning where there's a jarring, you know, like you, we're bearing huge fruit in Australia. I mean, you have this massive radio show, you've got a blossoming, you know, writing, speaking ministry. And you're still, though, you are still sorting through the death of a dream. This wasn't just your wife's dream. You both wanted children. And how devastating that that didn't happen. And yet her dream job happens, but it's in the UK. 
And I, I love in the book, you're like, I'm not painting myself as a hero. This is something, you know, your wife really went through some pretty significant loss there and you, and you love her and you went to the UK, but you still did have a double loss. And there are times when people have that, but I feel like what comes out of people who, whom God asked to go to those places is such depth that you can't get in the shallows. I mean, I, I just have to ask, and I usually ask this at the end of the show, but I want to know now, what do you know about God now that you didn't even know a decade ago because of the things you suffered and the things you've lost and the ways that you found God in the midst of it? What a great question. I have learned that he's very clever. Mm-hmm. But he's very clever at taking broken, disappointing, look at this and it seems like there's no hope, those kinds of situations, and actually turning them into a kind of beauty, beauty a kind of blessing that can only come through those broken things. That's what I've seen happen. Um, I've seen also that he's he's very open to us expressing our deepest emotions. I think there's still a little bit in, in many of us that we can't really tell God exactly what we feel because we think that we might be um, lacking reverence. So in those times where we are disappointed with God, you know, he, he said no again, or he hasn't said yes or no, he stayed silent on something, or he just hasn't, in our minds, come through for us in some kind of way, I've learned that it is okay to be honest with God and say, Lord, God, I'm really disappointed in you. This is how I feel. This is my feeling. I don't think it's probably objectively true. I don't think you disappoint anybody, but this is how I feel. Let me get it out so that then we can work through it to a place of maturity. Those would be the two things that straight away come to mind, his cleverness at turning very unexpected, bringing very unexpected beauty out of broken things, and the fact that we can actually express to him how we feel, and that will actually be part of our healing and moving forward. Mm. Isn't that just what they call lament? You know, you started to tell a story um, about an interview you did in the States here, and right away, I'm like, please don't let it be me. Please don't let it be me. And then I realized she was a Southerner. I can tell you, I know exactly exactly where you're going, and it's not you. (laughs) As soon as you said Southern Southern Belle or whatever, I'm like, whoo, because, uh, but if you don't mind, (laughs) tell me just a little bit about that, just because it illustrates a point when you're walking through the valley, how sometimes you bump into people that don't get it, and it it hurts more. You sound like you were so gracious with her, but what happened on that one? (laughs) Oh, look, she was a delightful, delightful radio host, Um, but the the interview started by her saying, uh, oh, you know, I loved your book, and I loved the bit where you said, and then she gave this quote. And I, for the life of me, had never written such words in my life. And so the interview started with her quoting somebody else's books. So I thought (laughs) she was probably quoting somebody else altogether. Anyway, the interview started properly, and it it was clear that she had read the book and she had gotten into it. Um, But I guess one of the funny things was, uh, you know, she said, uh, oh, you and your wife, you tried for 10 years to have a baby, and and you, you weren't able to. And me... Well, I just spit them babies out. <laughs> it was such a shock. She says, Larry only has to look at me a certain way and they're wheeling me into the delivery ward. <laughs> 
Oh, and, you know, nice. I, I wasn't I wasn't offended. By this time, I was actually laughing because she, mm. she was a you know she was a very humorous person. Um, but you know, in some cases, those kinds of words can be difficult to hear. Uh, in this case, it was fine. It really was. Oh, thank the Lord. And again, thank you, Lord. It wasn't me. I'm telling you what I just you know because <laughs> you're so right. We, there's times you know you can mean the best, and but you don't know how deep the pain goes. We're going to pause here. When we come back, we're going to start on this journey with Sheridan Sheridan Boise, title of his book, The Making of us, how we can become, I'm sorry, who we can become when life doesn't go as planned. And this book, again, is so lyrical, so beautifully written, and you will feel like you're on this journey of discovery with Sheridan. In this book, you take us on a journey, a pilgrimage of sort that you went with your friend. And at the first stop, you kneel by your bedside, you ask God for some new dreams, uh, for your book to sell, for him to speak to you. And then you hear this faint whisper back to you, just be present before me, Sheridan. This is your first task in life. Talk about that moment and just maybe uh, how it impacted you. Oh, so, so important. So, yes, the whole book is based around this pilgrimage that my friend DJ and I did from um, a little island in the north of England called Lindisfarne. Uh, and we were making our way 116 miles south to Durham, where uh, uh, Durham Cathedral is. Now, Lindisfarne, this tiny little island, is really significant in English history because it was really a bunch of missionaries way back in the 7th century, including a, a man named Cuthbert, who were really instrumental in ultimately Britain finally receiving the gospel. The Romans had brought Christianity to England in the second century, but it had basically remained a Roman religion. And so when they went back in the fourth century, Christianity died out in what we now know as the United Kingdom. Then it was these amazing, faith-filled, fire-of-God-filled missionaries, Cuthbert and Bede and Aidan and Hilda, who really brought the gospel into, into Britain. So we were making this pilgrimage from this you know, very special little island you know, down. But uh, it's a tidal island. You're not able to, um, to, to access it because it, it floods. Uh, it floods twice a day. You can only get access at certain hours of the day. And so when I arrived to begin the pilgrimage, um, I couldn't get onto the island. So I had to stay in this, um, this little uh, hotel just uh, by the kind of on, on the mainland. And uh, I, I was just so lost. I was just so... I was so detached. I felt like a plastic bag floating in the breeze, you know, shoved around by each passing car, whooshing this way and whooshing that way. And so I just got down my knees and I prayed, God, I really need direction in life. I really need to know what I'm supposed to do. What's my one big thing? What am I supposed to do? And then, yes, as you said, it actually took about an hour of prayer. And that's normally within an hour of prayer. I generally have kind of felt God's presence in some kind of way, but I still hadn't. And then out of the blue, these words, just be present, Sheridan. Just be present before me. This is your first task in life. And I had been badgering him about purpose and dreams and starting something new. And he was saying, just be present. This is your first calling in life. How many of us, when we talk about calling, we straight away think of a career or we think about some sort of dream we want to achieve, even if it's a ministry dream or something for God. He says, your first calling in life is just to be with me. This is the, 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 the fountain from which everything else flows. And this is what's true for every single one of us. And we have an amazing um, ability to attach 
our value, our identity, our sense of okayness to what we do. And so those who are on a path and they got a sense of their purpose, and maybe they're even in a season of favor and fruitfulness, don't realize how attached they are to those things because everybody wants a purpose, wants momentum. And it isn't until you're severely pruned until and you go into a season of obscurity, of wilderness season where I feel like God does this because he's a father who loves us. And he reminds us again, you're not what you do. You're someone you love. And without those resets, we really, I think, are at great risk to starting to believe our own press, to thinking we are what we do. And I've interviewed so many people, Sheridan, who've gone into major burnout and made choices they wish they wouldn't have because God was compelling them to step away, to try to call them back to being this first task you're talking about. They didn't listen and they went headlong into something they shouldn't have. It really is a loving father who leads us into these places as painful as they are, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we were reading some scripture every morning before we set out on, you know, the next 12, 14 miles that we had to do each day to complete the pilgrimage. And one of them was John 15, where Jesus talks about, you know, um, you know, uh, you are the vine, uh, my father is the, is the gardener. And the, the thing that I'd never seen in that verse before was that it's the fruitful branches that get cut back. You know, we straight away think of the dead branches being cut off and we're worried, oh, you know, Lord, I hope when I'm, I'm never going to be the dead branch. He actually says it's the fruitful branches that get cut back. They're the ones that get pruned. And why do they get pruned? So that they can be fruitful even more afterwards. That really, that really hit me. And so uh, sometimes, you know, we can think that we're kind of, you know, being cut off, but we're actually being pruned back for greater service and greater, greater fruitfulness. And yes, so that we not kind of, like you said, believing our own press releases and we're not kind of focusing our whole sense of self on the productivity or the fruitfulness that we're seeing. Um, that's by the grace of God. Um, our calling is to just stay in, in constant communion with, with the Father, just as Jesus did when he was doing his earthly ministry. Well, Sheridan, as you journeyed along the countryside, this idea that your first task is to be present before the Lord. Did that start to settle in? Did it start to bring rest to your soul? Or were you still in a place of wrestling going, but I want a purpose, I want to know? Because anybody would. I mean, anybody who's a producer who's responsible with their time, so to speak, you're going to be like, put me on the track, give me a sense. And yet it's just like you can't, it's an itch you can't scratch when he's like, not yet. I mean, how did you wrestle through that as you journeyed? Yeah, I would hate for anybody to think that I went on you know, an eight or nine day journey and I tagged on a three day retreat onto it and suddenly all my big questions were solved <laughs> by the end of that. <laughs> yeah. That's just not how it works. I mean, the making of us, the book, uh, was those days plus four years of reflection and praying through and, and studying and, and, and talking to people and uh, and kind of working things through to the point where I will still say, I'm still on the journey of working things through, but I, I say now I am in a much more settled place. Now I feel that I can much more readily and truly rest in the fact that my calling is to be present before God and that my essential identity is being a child of God. Now, I believed that before. I preached on it. I wrote on it. But when you go through a season where you, where you are pruned back, uh, you find out how much you've truly believed it. That's and true. as people read The Making of Us, they'll see that I'm kind of returning back to this idea that I'm a child of God, but I'm wrestling with God with it. I'm actually saying, you know, look, can, can I truly, truly rest 
in my identity as being a child of God? Can I truly rest in that rather than a career-based identity? Can I truly do that? And I have to be honest in the book and say, look, I want to be, but I'm not too sure I am yet. And so that's the journey that we're on, to truly rest in that. Now, being a writer, speaker, broadcaster, or for our listener, it's maybe being a mum or a dad or an engineer or an artist or a teacher or a nurse or something, they're all great identities, but they are secondary identities. Our primary identity is being a child of God. If we can rest in that love, and of course the love that is bigger, higher, deeper, wider than we can ever imagine, once we rest in that, really go deep in that, then we will find that we're a little bit more immune to the storms of life that come that um, so rock us when we then lose something. And with every loss comes in some sense a loss of identity. If you're a child of God, nothing can take that away from you. Well, beautiful. And going back to the John 15 reference, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain in me. I mean, Jesus did nothing apart from the Father's direction. And even these prunings, I think they just reaffirm everything comes out of that life source of Jesus. And yet, if those things aren't tested in us, you know, if we go too long and uh, you say our secondary calling becomes like a primary calling, idolatry sets in. And no matter, even if we feel satisfied and secure because we got a plan, I just need a plan, the fruit is diminished because it's not coming out of life source. It's coming out of a misplaced identity, right? Yes. Yeah, so well put, Susie. Sheridan, so here you are on this journey. This was years ago, and I love that you took years to write this book. I just think more authors, we need to do that. Um, but I want to know, like, what were some of the things God went after? I'm sure it was disappointment, you know, and hurt, and some of your unanswered questions. How did that go between you and the Lord? Or were you just more present, kind of waiting for God to bring up the subject? Or how did that look for you? Well, I'm going to be honest here, and as we continued on with our pilgrimage, actually it was harder and harder to listen to God because um, the pain level grew higher and higher. Mm. (laughs) We had really bad blisters, and uh, well, DJ did in particular, and then I had quite a bit of back and hip pain as we went on. Um, But in the midst of that, God was still, he was talking to us. He was bringing things up amongst our conversations. I was journaling in the evenings as much as I could, as much as I had the energy left to do. And some very important conversations um, were his tool of us thinking deeply about these big questions, who we are and what we're really here to do. I mean, there were were a number of those things. One thing that, that was really very fruitful was we started thinking about future regrets. If you want to focus your life, if you're wondering where your life is going and you want to focus it, once we've done the other things that we've talked about, making sure that you know you recognize your first calling is to just be in God's presence, is to be with God. And once you recognize your primary identity as being as a child of God, if you really want to focus your life, ask yourself this question. What would I regret not doing or at least attempting before I die? Now, as we're walking along, I asked that question of DJ. And the interesting thing about the question is it's kind of like a diver. It starts at the surface of the sea, but then if you give it time, it goes deep. So at the beginning, you know, DJ says, oh, look, I don't even want to give you the answers to what I'm thinking because they sound so cliched. And I said, well, no, give me those answers so that we can go deeper. So he says, well, okay, I'd regret not, you know, finishing my PhD in theology. I'd regret not being a good husband and I'd regret not being a good father. And at that point he stops. And you could tell that the question was starting to dive a little deeper. And he says, okay, 
here's something I'd regret not doing. I would regret not helping my daughters find God for themselves and discover their own God-given vocation. And we were off. It was like the diver had then spotted some treasure on the ground and had reached out and picked it out. And so we continued a little bit further and he started thinking of more things that he would regret not giving his time and attention to. Now, these were the deeper things. These were the things of God. These were not the surface level things of building this and building that and starting this and starting that. These were essential things, little things that maybe only him and God would see. Then we asked the question of me and I started thinking the same thing. I I could only think of surface level things. Oh, I'd like to write some books and I'd like to do this and I'd like to, you know, produce a documentary and gave it some time and the diver started to work. And I said, you know what? I would regret not trying to build just a few small close friendships that I walk with for the rest of my days. Really deep, intimate friendships. You can have lots of acquaintances, lots of contacts but deep, deep friendships. So that was one treasure that kind of was picked up by the diver and popped into his uh, treasures bag. Um, I, I started to think of other things along those lines, those those deeper things that maybe are not necessarily seen by other people, but they're the things of God. That was a very fruitful time of us discussing those things, and I can see that that was definitely prompted by the Spirit of God. I love that you gave it time. And again, you don't have to be on a pilgrimage to sit down with someone to say, let's have one of those conversations that has the potential to go to deep places. Um, I think that's absolutely beautiful. I love that you did that. Um, Any other times when you were traveling with your friend that maybe surprised you as you're just hiking? You you make such a good point. You're going to get blisters. You're going to get tired. You got wet at times, you know, from rain and different things. Um, Any times when you were just doing the trail and something surprised you, something you saw, felt, heard? Okay, well, let me tell you about Dunstanbrook Castle. This would have been the second day in the pilgrimage. And uh, these these ruins were kind of in our view, on our horizon, just in very small kind of detail. And then they were growing as, as we continued the whole day. And then when we got there, we found them to be Dunstanbrook Castle. I mean, this is the amazing thing about living in the United Kingdom, Susie, is that there are, there are castles everywhere, particularly in the north of England. And we were going past castles and we were going into old ancient caves and all sorts of things like this. So we get to Dunstanbrook Castle. And it's really fascinating to trace the history of this particular castle. It was built in the 14th century, so 700 years old. And it's in a pretty good state, considering how old it is. It's crumbled, but, you know, it's probably about still half erect. And we look into it. And the interesting thing about this, it was built by Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, Now, the thing is that there was no need for a castle in this particular region. There were no fortified cities. Um, There was nothing to protect. And so this leads uh, archaeologists to kind of ask some other questions. Well, what about the actual design of it might give us some clues as to what it does? It turned out that uh, Thomas had these amazing underground um, water channels cut and then he had these giant artificial lakes made all around the castle. So you can imagine that these lakes would have given these most amazing reflections of this huge, huge castle. And this is where you discover what its purpose was. It was the equivalent of a jetliner for somebody rich today. It was there as a status symbol to declare to the region how rich 
and powerful and the status that Thomas had in the region. We walk up to the information center and you think of your legacy. You think of what you're going to leave after you. Well, this is pretty impressive. A castle keeps Thomas's name alive 700 years later. That's pretty impressive. Then we went and read, read the information sign out the front and it remembered Thomas as, quote, an arrogant and unpopular man. Mm. Now, that was a powerful message and a powerful lesson for us. Let's take that as a metaphor. We can build castles. Ultimately, they're going to crumble. Some of them might last for quite a few years after us. But what's the most important thing? The most important thing is to be a person of character, a person of virtue. And you know, Susie, I, I reckon we've lost this. Even in the Christian world, you know, again, when we think of success, we think of big ministries, we think of big platforms, big stages, big book sales, you know. Um, you, you, let's, just, let's just be honest with ourselves. If we're going to compare preachers, we're going to think about the one who has the huge multimedia ministry. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, this is what matters most. And I think we sometimes reduce the power that virtue has in the kingdom of God. I tell you, if you forgive somebody, you can set off little echoes that will not just impact that person, but maybe even shape them to be a forgiver for some other people further down the line. That one act of forgiveness can actually have an amazing legacy further on down the line. Our name will never be attached to it. But in terms of God's eyes, what a legacy that can leave. What about giving an act of grace to somebody, an act of mercy to somebody? Those are profound things. They'll never be written up in the history books, but in the eyes of God, they're profound. Can I just tell a little story about Cuthbert? I've grown to love this guy. Mm. I've never thought too much about saints of, of, of old or anything like that, and, and maybe some of our listeners haven't either. But Cuthbert, a most amazing man of faith, um, well known to be a man of miracle, um, well be known to be a, a man who craved solitude just to be present with God and yet would also do what was called of him. He didn't want to be Bishop of Lindisfarne. He didn't want to be somebody who was amongst lots of busyness and people, and yet he did it when he was called to do it. He would go and preach into the tribal regions in the hills, which nobody else wanted to go into because it was where all the wars were fought. This is the 7th century. At this time, what we now know as the United Kingdom was basically a whole, probably about seven or eight different kings all at war with each other. He went into those dangerous areas. But the thing that I love is that there's this little story told to him, told about him by the English historian Bede. He's the first historian in history. And he tells this story of uh, Cuthbert going into a plague-ravaged village. And he takes a friend, and they go and they pray for people. They go to bring comfort of people that have lost relatives. Again, 7th century, we don't have penicillin, we don't have uh, antibiotics, you know. We, these people are really prone to the difficulties of life. And he's prayed for everybody he can, and he says to his friend, do you think there's anybody else that I can pray for before we leave and move on to the next village? And his friend looks around and he finds someone. There's this mother, and she's standing at a distance. She doesn't even want to come near to the, the holy man, Cuthbert. And she's holding a child. The child is at the point of death. She's already lost one son to the plague, and this son is moving very close to death himself. And Cuthbert goes to that woman. He takes the child in his arms. 
Now remember, this child has the plague. He takes the child into his arms. He kisses his forehead. He prays for him. He blesses him. And then he foretells, he prophesies, that this child will not die. He will recover. He will be well. And that's indeed what happened. And you know, I think of all the things that are said about Cuthbert. I mean, the entire city of Durham in the United Kingdom is built around Cuthbert. It's where uh, wow. his remains were brought. Uh, then, uh, then Durham Cathedral was built around them. Then the whole city of Durham was built around that. So the very city of Durham owes its existence to Cuthbert. We've got churches and schools everywhere in this country called St. Cuthbert's. And yet the very thing that I think matters most in the eyes of God is that he saw a little boy, took him in his arms, blessed him, kissed his forehead, prayed for him. That, that is what matters most. Wow. You know what stands out to me, this contrast between, was it Thomas who built this castle? Is that, yes. is that the name of the, yes, he's got this castle. He, yes. he wrecks this castle. He surrounds it by water to reflect back his great accomplishment. Right away, I'm thinking of the Tower of Babel and the two motivations for the Tower of Babel. One was uh, to make a name for ourselves. And then two was to protect our interests, you know, to keep us from being scattered. And you think of how many ministries today are out to make a name for themselves and to protect their interests. And you know it by, because they get territorial, don't steal my thunder. And they're really building their kingdom not God's kingdom. That puts the fear of God in me. And just the words you used just now to talk about Cuthbert, that others built things in his honor. He didn't build anything in his honor. He died to himself so that Christ could live. He took risks every which way he turned for the kingdom, and others built something up in his honor. I mean, what a complete difference when you're thinking legacy. That's just stunning to me. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? Wow. And, you know, by the grace of God, you know, he might entrust us with some of those, you know, structures and some of those ministries. And um, But you're, oh, you're so right. It's just so tempting. And I've, you know, I have, uh, will be, no doubt are, um, prone to exactly the same temptations. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, you know, if you want to do your best for God, if you want to, if you want to reach people, if you want to help people and bless people, and if you then are in a position where you're able to, um, to to bless a number of people, maybe you know, like 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 you and I, Susie, where we do get because of the media and the power of this wonderful tool that we have, called radio and called online, and uh, we are able to touch a number of people at once. We've got to be so careful. We're the ones who need to be retreating into our closets regularly and always reminding ourselves. I am a child of God. It's not about this. It's not about the big things. It's not about the name. It's not about the logos. This is the fountain of everything else that comes. And if we stop up that fountain, well, then the life itself will stop flowing. Very good. I'm going to read this quote again. Sometimes the God of wonders guides us with clear words and lights in the sky, like a rushing wind that blows wherever it pleases. He sweeps us into his plans and into unexpected places. So you're on this pilgrimage. This is years ago, and you took years to work this book out, which, again, I just love. Um, when did the wind start to shift, where God started to breathe fresh life? I mean, this was kind of a severe pruning. And, and just for the word, friends, just a note to the wise Pruning is not punishment. Pruning is preparation for promotion. Pruning is preparation for more fruit. God does discipline his children, but pruning is not that process. He cuts us back so he can make us more. And I would love to know, as you started to seek God in that place, when he started to download Sheridan, I still have more for you to do. I want you to know who you are in me first, but I have more for you to do. Talk about that. You know, Susie, it was part of 
the confusion that I was feeling was that actually God was already bringing it. Mm. See, I had so fixated on my career as my identity um, and so fixated on what the previous season had been about, which was very much about me being an apologist, you know, me being an explainer of faith and God and everything to, to a secular audience. That, what, that was what we were aiming to do with the radio show I was hosting in Australia. And, and, and it was great. And that's still a very big part of my heart today is trying to, you know, to communicate those things um, to, the, to the mainstream world. Uh, but when I came to the UK, I, I just kind of I remember sitting down and kind of trying to work out a new mission statement for my life. And I pretty much came up with something that I was already doing back in Australia. And yet God was doing different stuff. And that was half of the reason why I was so confused. Was this just a little bit of a blip? Was this just kind of a, um, you know, an, an off ramp? And then we kind of get back onto the main highway of me being an apologist again and doing broadcasting, hosting my own show and all that kind of stuff. Or was what was starting to bubble up as a result of the previous book, Resurrection Year, was, was this the new path? And what that was, was that suddenly I found myself helping people start again after their broken dreams and start starting helping people uh, cope with what they felt was an unanswered prayer and then starting to help people recycle and what we would call redeem those difficulties into something new. It was already starting to happen. And so to some degree, it was actually a dawning process that, hang on, hang on, this is proving to be incredibly fruitful. Maybe this is the new path that he has for me. I remember sitting down with um, a friend named Liam. Uh, Liam is uh, is a Carmelite brother. Uh, so, you know, comes from a very different faith tradition than me. And uh, I must have, you know, I was probably, you know, my, my, my Protestant evangelical background probably was a little bit suspicious of, of, of in places. But we sat down and he was to speak a great word of God into my life. I was at a retreat center and I saw Liam and we had a little chat and I said, you know, I don't know what I'm doing with my life anymore. And he said, you're not broadcasting here. And I said, no, I'm not. I don't even know if I'm supposed to. And he said, ah, oh, and how is your marriage? And I thought, well, actually, Liam, I, I really want to talk about the career and the ministry. But, oh, okay, well, since you've asked, well, actually, our marriage is good and it's strong. And, and I'm, I'm really grateful for our marriage, actually, because we've been able to weather 10 years of infertility and all the challenges that that brings. And a smile grew on Liam's face. And he said, I'm so glad to hear that because marriage is a great symbol of the covenants that God has with us. Our covenant with him, our covenants with each other, our arrangements, our, our agreements, our relationships. He says marriage is one of the most powerful things, powerful reflectors of this to the world. You've been able to experience this trial and yet not have your marriage suffer. Oh, Sheridan, the world needs to see that kind of commitment. It gets so few examples of it. You may not realize the witness you're already having on the world by just being who you are. So that was the first thing he spoke. We kept on talking. Later on that night, we finally got back to my question as to whether I should, you know, go back into broadcasting or something. And it just came about by him asking me how, the, you know, what the result of Resurrection Year, the previous book, had been. And I started telling him, well, it's been quite amazing, actually. Um, single people are finding hope and, and finding that they can go on even without the husband or the wife. And childless couples are 
learning how to start again. And um, I've had people that had lost faith as a result of going through a broken dream come back to faith and a whole heap of things like this. And he said, Sheridan, do you see what's happening? The lack of a birth in your life is birthing life in others. Wow. And again, he just to you. put his finger on it. Life it to others. It just worked. And yeah. And that goes back to that verse uh, that we started the show on, Susie. You know, death was at work in us, but life was at work in you. He was echoing that. The lack of a, a birth of life in, in us had resulted in the birth of life in others. That is when things started to click for me. You know what? This is what, it's already happening. I just was too late to catch up on it. It's so much about who we are, not so much about what we do in terms of, um, you know, careers and logos and program names. It's about serving people with what he's entrusted us with. And, And often the greatest tools he gives us are the tools of trial and suffering. You know, it's interesting. While you're asking God these questions, life is springing up around you. You don't see that, but you're asking questions. And Jesus, knowing life is springing up around you, is keeping the eyes on you going, can you be content in me? Like, I am growing things around you. We're not talking about that yet, because he's asking a primary question. And then you open your eyes and you see he's been growing things all along. And uh, and you even said, you know, he's been leading me when I was confused. You want to read a creed, and I want to make sure we give you time for that. So go ahead and set it up and share with us what God's given you. Yeah, okay. Um, so at the end of the book, uh, as you said, it took me four years of reflection and two years to write the book after this little eight-day pilgrimage that we did back in 2013. But I kind of try and bring all the lessons together into some sort of creed. Now, you know, the Christianity has got a, a number of creeds. They're statements that are positively written about belief that were there to counteract error. And I wanted to try and write one for myself that was to do exactly the same thing. So um, this is a shortened version I'm going to read you. You can read the full thing in the book, but you can download this from themakingofus.com if you like as well. Here it goes. The hand that spins the galaxies brought me into being. The one who holds the stars has made me his own. I am God's child. My life is rich. My days are sacred. I am held by a love that's wider and higher than the farthest edges of this expanding universe. I am a pilgrim in this world, in search of wisdom and wonder. I will take new adventures and follow God into the unknown. What I achieve is not as important as the person I become. So I will seek to imitate the nail-pierced one. I will step in the direction of my strengths and talents. They are spirit-given tools for my God-given tasks. I will pay attention to my persistent aspirations. They could be the whispers of God. I will serve all I can and walk deeply with a few. I will aim for great things but leave my legacy to God. The path is long and the terrain at times hard. Still. I will not wish for another's life. I will take my place, play my part. Something important will be missed if I don't. For the hand that spins the galaxies wants me here. And I got to tell you, friends, the whole creed is worth printing up and putting on your wall. This was beautiful. And I always love talking with you, Sheridan. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Just brilliant. Uh, Well, the quality of our conversation, Susie, is just a gift to me. And thank you so much for this time. 